The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. Uh, I am thrilled. This is, uh, you know, of course, every show I do, every guest I have is is a treat and is fascinating and is fun. And, and I hope you uh, enjoy listening to these shows as much as I enjoy preparing for them and, and uh, having these great conversations. But today is uh, particularly fun for me, and I uh, think you'll enjoy it too. The title of this, this uh, week's show is called Exhibit Tricks, and many of you probably uh, immediately when I say that word, those words you think of Paul Orselli, uh, the, uh, the, the mind behind Exhibit, tri- uh, Exhibit Tricks, a blog that has been going on for quite some time, and in fact, we'll actually talk about uh, Paul celebrating quite an anniversary with his blog. You'll also know Paul as the editor and originator of the Cheap Books series uh, that has been published by the Association of Science and Technology Centers. And in fact, this has become such a popular book, it is now in its fourth iteration called Cheap Books Greatest Hits. And I know Paul will uh, share some of those uh, thoughts and insights with us. Uh, In addition to being just an absolutely great uh, consultant and uh, an inventive and playful um, museum, a creative professional for creating museums and exhibits. To me, Paul also exemplifies the best in our field, uh, the ability and the desire to share everything he has to offer and actually create creates a bridge between some of the disparate segments of our museum community. Uh, I will say that uh, Paul is also, as you know, many of you know, he is the president and chief instigator at POW, which stands for Paul Orselli Workshops. And uh, today, uh, it, we're just going to have a wide-ranging conversation. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, and uh, thanks for that introduction. I, I hope I can live up to it. 
Oh, you will, you will. Don't sell yourself short. Uh, Paul, what I do actually with all of my guests is I'm going to ask you to help ground our listeners a little bit in the context of of who you are and um, especially those key experiences that you feel have shaped your career and philosophy as you have moved through your career. So could you share some of that with us? Sure. Um, It's funny because people either in the profession or when I meet people uh, outside the profession, they're like, oh, well, you know, how did you get started in museums? Uh, did, you, did you take a class for that? And um, I, I guess my honest answer is that um, how I got started in museums has a lot to do with um, the things I was exposed to growing up. Uh, I grew up in Detroit, actually in the city of Detroit, and um, some of my earliest memories are of some of the great museums there, the Detroit Institute of Arts uh, especially. Um, but then going on um, through my academic career, um, at, at a certain point when it dawns on you that, oh, yeah, I have to get a job <laughs> after all this is over. Um, r- really, I was always interested in combining sort of my passions for sharing information with people and for making stuff. I was, I was a maker before, <laughs> before, before making was cool, I suppose. But um, the, uh, So when I was finishing my undergraduate work at the University of Michigan, I really knew that I wanted to be uh, in the museum business and my academic backgrounds in science and science education. So my first thought as I was mailing uh, in the pre-internet days, mailing hundreds of uh, cover letters and resumes to potential museum job offerers, um, I thought, oh, well, that would be great. But then I saw an advertisement in the student newspaper for a job with the Detroit Historical Society um, being a living history interpreter. So it's interesting. Less than two weeks after I graduated, I had my first museum job, and that was uh, as a living history interpreter at Historic Fort Wayne uh, across the river from Canada in Detroit, uh, an extant fort where they trained Civil War soldiers. So every day when I went to work, it was 1864, and I was wearing a Civil War uniform, and I spoke with people as if I was in 1864, and that was really interesting because it was not a science museum job, it was a history museum job, it was not really an exhibits job, it was an education job, it was uh, working with the public, so I think my first exposure to through my first museum job was something I hadn't expected. And I think actually that that was a really good thing because it showed me the range of possibilities within the museum field. Um, And then from there, (laughs) from there I've never stopped working in the museum field, honestly, which is uh, over 30 years now. So I've done sort of a grand circle tour uh, when I've worked inside museums around the United States. I I worked um, outside of Boston in Acton at the Discovery Museums there. I've worked in Austin at the Children's Museum, the original one (laughs) there, and then uh, circled back up and worked in Ann Arbor, and then to Long Island uh, because I met my... (laughs) 
this is another museum connection. I met my wife who grew up in Queens um, when we were both working at the Austin Children's Museum. So boy from Detroit meets girl from Queens in Austin, <laughs> Texas. It's perfect uh, all-American story. But um, after we had moved uh, and lived in Michigan for a while, a- after our first uh, child was born, she said, find a job in New York. I want to live by my family for a while. So I went to work for the Long Island Children's Museum as their director of exhibits and brought them from their uh, pilot, their demonstration site, to their permanent home that they're in now. And so, yeah, that's it's, it's sort of... Um, I mean, if there's a common thread in that sort of disparate tale, I suppose it's um, being open to the opportunities and the experiences, and that's certainly something that I speak about with um, people I work with and people I mentor and um, also um, graduate students as, as I teach or lecture at different museum studies or museum education programs. So that's me in a nutshell, and now I do POW, <laughs> as you've indicated, and so instead of working for one museum at a time, I get to work for many museums at a time, hopefully, <laughs> and that's actually that's what's turned out for the past 10 years or so. Well, that that's wonderful, and you're right, uh, Paul, and I'm glad you identified that that it is that that thread of being open to opportunities. I I would say too that your your first museum experiences in working uh, on the front lines, which uh, being a, an oral interpreter is a true art form uh, in so many ways. I mean, not only do you have to know the the information and 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 stay in character, but it but you also have to know how to engage people, sort of read body language, know when they don't want to be engaged, uh, and make sure. That that they have a have have a good experience and uh, in 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 that uh, and so I am sure that that those uh, those early experiences I'm sure have uh, have sort of followed you throughout all of the uh, things that you do whether you're working behind the scenes or in in front of the scenes. Well, and it's funny because having worked on the floor as an explainer and ha- having been responsible as a uh, you know, director of exhibits for making sure that things stay repaired and everything keeps in good operating order. Now, a- as, uh, as an independent museum professional, I'm really sensitive. I-, I-, I don't want to saddle my clients, you know, well, here I have this grand idea, and, well, after I leave, it's your problem. That... that, that um, I really, I really think back to all those times and my experiences and feeling like I was the person or I was the, one of the team of people responsible for keeping the museum running and interacting with the public. So I, I agree. I think that really comes into my thinking now with my independent practice. I, I agree with you. I, 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 not to take anything away from anyone, but for those of us who have lived through 
the day after opening day and it's all <laughs> and and it's all on you and the show has to keep going on you know this it's, is not the one day theater performance I, I, the doors open and you are open forever <laughs> and uh, so so appreciating the operational impact of design decisions has always been one of my uh, uh, my my um, uh, emphasis as well in in my practice and and just also making sure that that no matter how wonderful the exhibits or as you say the you know grand ideas that we we all may have had you know three years before the project opens it's really those those operational day-to-day activities and making sure that the staff uh, is is engaged and excited and continues to be creative uh, is is really I think what sets uh, 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 amazing uh, uh, projects from just uh, uh, separates those from from just you know pretty good. So going from pretty good to great. Sure. Well, and I think that's the ongoing evolution of our business too, where you know the the traditional cabinet of curiosities that 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 were for the most part intended to be static sorts of enterprises to now the continued emphasis on co-creation and engagement with the communities uh, that the museum engages with you know those those are ongoing evolving uh, it's a it's a living breathing beast it's not just something trapped in amber so i think that's important yeah i i i agree with you um, 100%, particularly when uh, if at one time the only way you could get the information was going to that museum and opening up those those uh, cabinet drawers and understanding that, you know, that's one thing, but when we have uh, the internet on our phone, uh, we don't need to go someplace just to learn information. We have to, we we go to those places for other types of engagement, uh, social engagement, and 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 civic engagement, and that goes back to the people. Yep. Well, let's let's move on a little bit. Uh, as I alluded to in my introduction, you are celebrating an anniversary of sorts, and that is that uh, just I think just a week or two ago, you sent out your five hundred. That's five o o, folks. Um, blog post. Congratulations. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's it was sort of surprising to me too. You you know you sort of vaguely keep track of those things, and then it's like, wow, five hundred posts. How long? And then it, when was the first post? Oh my, you know, well, after after a certain point, it's like, oh yeah, I started this seven years ago. It's so it's sort of like waking up and realizing, oh yeah, I've been married twenty years. Is, is that right? <laughs> so. Yes, time time flies, and you know. To be honest, in two thousand and seven, uh, you're starting to write a blog post when most of us are just sort of uh, thinking about listservs. So, uh, what what prompted you to uh, uh, to start this blog? Um, I, I think uh, I think really two primary things. One goes back to that notion of looking for a mechanism to share information with folks because really at the end of the day that's one of the things that I like best about the museum business the the 
level of openness for the most part and willingness to share in a collegial way information. So, um, of course, that happens in private conversations and emails and in sort of random encounters at uh, museum events or conferences, but uh, this this mechanism of the blog seemed like a good way for me to sort of collect and share information. I mean, it's it's a it's a resource for me too because my my back catalog I can go back or refer to things um, with clients or even with myself um, as a way to capture that information. And uh, bit by bit, it's like the it's like the it's like the old story about the tortoise of the hare, slow and steady after seven years and getting into a groove of posting about once a week now. Um, yeah, wow, 500 posts. So it's, and it's been great. And so do you have a favorite post? Um, you know, I would say that there, well, I, I can tell you what post really sticks out for me because of the response it got, both positive and negative. Like if I've ever, if I really ever got hate mail from one post, it was for a post um, that that was called Our Screens Killing Museums, um, <laughs> talking about the role of technology and, and sort of the honestly lazy <laughs> sort of approach sometimes we take towards technology. And that, that, that sort of continued to be something that I'm concerned about. I, um, of course, I use technology. I love technology. And I think that, that it's important to be thoughtful about the use of technology, just like any interpretive tool um, in museums. But there's something, there's something about certain types of technology, and I, I pick specifically on screens, that seems to lend itself to sort of, um, well, I'll just call them dopey decisions. It's like, oh, why don't we just put a big screen on the wall here? Or, oh, I know we can just use iPads or, or tablets uh, in, in this part of the exhibit. And sometimes that's done in a thoughtful way, and sometimes, um, oftentimes, I'm afraid, uh, that's done in a not-so-thoughtful way. So um, believe me, there's there's no shortage of strong opinions, <laughs> both pro and con about that. And yes, some people really got exercised about that. Um, so that I don't know if that was my favorite post, but that certainly is one that is a memorable post. I think um, it's interesting to look back and see through the analytics which kinds of posts uh, uh, serve as sort of evergreen posts that even if they were published at this point years ago, they still seem to um, attract a lot of views. And I think um, it's interesting. It's sort of like a way of measuring the pulse of the industry. Posts about technology get a lot of, uh, get a lot of views. Posts about um, sustainable design or green exhibit design, I'm glad people are really interested in that. Those posts get a lot of views. And then I do interviews also on my blog, and those get a lot of views because it's an opportunity for people, just like this radio program, for people to learn about fellow professionals and sort of the track that they've taken and their approaches towards things. And so um, the interviews get a lot of uh, get a lot of views also. 
Well, congrat. Well, again, uh, congratulations. Uh, it, it it is really quite a service to our field, and uh, for people who have not uh, don't know about Exhibit Tricks, uh, you can sign up for uh, Paul's blog, and uh, I would encourage you to do that. We are now going to take a very brief break, and when we come back, more uh, interesting thoughts and ideas with Paul Orselli. Remember, you're listening to me. Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert. You can always reach me at uh, carol.bossert at verizon.net and let me know what issues you'd like to be discussing on Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I'm here with Paul Orselli. And, Paul, um, one of the things that you have been doing, which I find just fascinating, is you have been working on the first children's museum in Bulgaria. Yeah, Uh, that's a great project. (laughs) Oh, I really want to hear about that. Uh, uh, How did that museum come about? Well, you know, this is this is this is sort of like a variation of the question you asked me before because um if i if I talk with people about projects and I say, "Oh, you know, I'm working in Miami and I'm working in san antonio they're they're interested, of course, and those are really interesting projects. But then if I say, "Oh yeah, and I'm working on the first children's museum in bulgaria there there's inevitably a li- a little beat, and then they're like, "Wow, what Bulgaria and they have to even think, "Well, do I know exactly where Bulgaria is and yeah, it's interesting I mean. Uh, and then they say, well, how did you get involved with that project? And honestly, it's that sort of 
not only people connection, but just sort of wonderful serendipitous happenstance because a few years ago when the, it was one of those years when both the Children's Museum Conference, ACM, and the AAM Conference were both in the same city in Chicago, and I was presenting actually at both conferences, but during the Children's Museum Conference after I presented this young woman came up and she said, oh, hi, I just, you know, I really liked your presentation. My name's Vesla. I'm from Bulgaria. And, you know, we don't have any museums like this. And I, I think it's really important. I want to help start a children's museum. So I was just tickled because at that point I had never even met anybody from Bulgaria, honestly. And I, she was so enthusiastic and sincere. And I thought, wow, you know, so I spent some time speaking with her. And then she walked away, and of course, I, I thought, as sometimes you have an encounter at a at a conference or something, I thought, well, I'm never going to see this lady again. Oh, you know, what, 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 what's my connection to Bulgaria? Except then a year and a half later, um, I got a, a set of emails inviting me to participate in what turned out to be a pilot project, which was actually a really smart thing. Um, the folks who were interested in starting the Children's Museum uh, approached, there's a foundation which is based in the United States and then also has offices in, in Bulgaria called the America for Bulgaria Foundation. And um, when they approached the foundation, they said, oh, we want to start a Children's Museum. You know, first off, most of the people, they weren't even sure exactly what a Children's Museum was. It's sort of like that old, it's sort of like, you know, the old gag, well, so are there children on display in cases or that. And I mean, it was literally almost like that. They weren't sure what a children's museum was. So they said, well, we're not sure about this. What we'll do instead is we'll give you an opportunity to make five exhibits around the country. They called them children's corners, but we would call them, you know, interactive, small interactive exhibit galleries. And that was actually a brilliant idea because... They got to build interactive children's and family-oriented exhibits all around the country into existing museums, you know, an outdoor history museum, a natural history museum, a museum of geology. And, of course, they were extremely successful. On the first, on the first anniversary, they sent me a picture. On the first anniversary of the first Children's Corner that opened in uh, Blagojevgrad, um, the school children came. They were dressed up. They made a birthday cake for for the <gasps> exhibition, and oh they sang goodness. a song. I was like, oh, I was so jealous. I was like, I'd like school children to come for the first anniversary of every exhibit I make and sing a song and make a cake. And uh, anyway, it, needless to say, then the foundation and everybody was like, well, we need to have a children's museum in Bulgaria, and so. They put out um, the call, and they made a commitment. They put out a, an international competition, an RFP process, essentially. And I was lucky enough to um, be on the team with uh, Skolnik Architecture and Design Partnership because it's also an architectural project. And it's really, I have to say, it's really been a wonderful process. The museum um, is scheduled to open next year. 2015, um, probably a little more than a year from now, and 
it's really been a true partnership. Um, there are lots of projects you work with that you like and uh, you like the people, but this, this has been a really special project. And I think the wonderful thing about it is it will have a, a big impact not only within Bulgaria, but in, in that entire region of the world, um, getting people to think about the possibilities for not only museums and shifting and being um, sensitive and engaged with their communities, but uh, more broader societal reaches in terms of education and thinking about that in terms of the education of children. So, wow. I mean, (laughs) if I hadn't been in Chicago and the vessel hadn't come up to talk with me, I, you know, I, it's it's like one of those movies. You know, if if if, if I had gotten on the next subway, I would have never bumped into that person, and who knows uh, what would have happened. But uh, fortunately, um, here we are. It did. <laughs> it, it did. It'll be it'll be incredibly gratifying to to walk through that building after years of of working on it and to 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 see the efforts of so many people, and uh, not only in Bulgaria, but all around the world who've been involved with this project to, to see it to come to fruition. So that's, well, that, I love that, stories like that. That's why yeah. I'm in this business. No, it's, it sounds great. Now, you know, uh, clearly your, um, uh, your, your colleague, um, had come to the United States uh, was listening to, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, U.S. centric uh, approaches to children's museums and and something uh, about your presentation and and I'm sure others that she heard resonated with her. I mean, obviously they have children in B- Bulgaria and there are families and pretty much families love their children and want them to uh, to learn and and be engaged in in the world. But I'm wondering. Wondering, were there any, are there any aspects of sort of our and I say our and you know, sort of the North American uh, UK approach to to building or creating museums? Were, was there anything there that you know in your mind was of course this is how we do it that you that that didn't export well or uh, you had to sort of modify your approach? What I'm interested in what your experiences have been. Yeah, I mean. I, I think really it's analogous to working and being sensitive to the to the particular situation and communities and environment that you're working with. You know, whether I was doing a project like I said I'm doing now in Miami and San Antonio, I, I wouldn't it, it makes me a little nervous, it makes me a little itchy actually to um sort of do the, <laughs> I, I call it the sort of uh, exhibit equivalent of doing card tricks. It's like, well, you know, I've done this 50 times before. I can easily do this for you, and it, there's about that much thought put into it. Um, that That's not really, I don't think that serves the situation really well in, in any instance. And so I think in Bulgaria, but also in just about any project, there are things that are important to the communities engaged with the museum and the staff involved with the museum. And I think it's really important that there is that give and take, that it's not like I'm coming in as, oh, you know, here comes comes the big kahuna. He's going to tell us how to do everything that we need to know about children's museums. I I mean, and not not in a... 
sort of goofy way, but I, I mean, I, I like to think that I'm still learning <laughs> about this as we go along. I mean, I've, I've gotten experiences, but I, I don't think uh, myself or anyone else has the definitive answers. I, I often tell my grad students at, at Bank Street that there's not just one right answer for exhibits, and I, I think that's, that's really sort of the way I would summarize the interaction with the folks in Bulgaria. There's been a really honest uh, back and forth uh, between us, and if there are things that they don't agree with or things that we don't agree with, we we like each other well enough that we're able to say that, you know, as opposed to some sorts of professional relationships which seem so stilted that really nobody wants to have those sort of open conversations. I think I think that you, you were talking before, you know, like what's the difference between a project that's just okay or pretty good and one that really just sings. And I think a lot of it has to do with what that level of communication is during its development. And so happily, I would say, <laughs> that, that that's how I feel about this project. You know, you, you not only like the project, but you, you really like the people that you're working with. You know, fortunately, no. that's how... Fortunately, that's how most of my projects go. There are, there, are, there are very few projects when after the dust settles and everybody gets their requisite amount of food and sleep and showers, you look up and you say, well, would I work with that person again? And most of the time the answer is yes, but there are times where you're like, mm, maybe not. Well, I think you, uh, you've, you've touched on so many, many things here, Paul, that I think are so very important and I want to bring up. But what, one of the things uh, that you mentioned is, and, uh, was that you, know, you tailor your approach. Uh, I mean, I always, in my practice, I always, I try not to be flip, but when someone asks me a question uh, you know, about, well, how would you do evaluation or how would you go about you know, get, gaining this information, uh, you know, the answer is always, well, it depends. It depends right. on the people. It depends on our goals. It depends on uh, the 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 culture. It depends on so many variables. And of course, as a as a professional, you can begin to identify those variables and and hone in on what's going to be the right approach. I know one of the challenges that that I have faced in doing work internationally, and mine has been you know primarily in in Asia and and the Middle East, is. Uh, is getting a sense of that community. Uh, you know, I, I can't live over there uh, for a year, year and a half, and really soak up the whole culture. So I'm just curious, uh, as you and your co- your uh, your, your um, American colleagues began to work on this project, how how did you go about sort of understanding the community that you were working in? Well, I mean, um, I, I think. Um, it's funny, I I mean, even though I've been to Bulgaria several times now and had a lot of conversations with folks, I I don't know that I can, my honest answer is, I don't know that I can really understand Bulgaria the way somebody who's, you know, that a Bulgarian can. So I think it goes back to that sort of, honest interchange between partners. And I think also um, it relates to this broader issue, which I think is also an important thread of my practice, which is helping uh, 
organizations build their internal capacity. There's a big difference if somebody comes in, you know, here comes the phalanx of experts. Uh, you know, it's like the, the museum SWAT team arrives and they, they sort of rappel in from a helicopter, you know, that, that would be a good movie. But uh, they, they, you know, they, and then they leave. And the people who are left behind, uh, like we were talking about before, the floor staff and the, the frontline staff and the maintenance staff, they're left holding the bag a lot of times. And I just think that's a goofy way to proceed. I, I think what you want to do is how can you really build up this shared understanding of, of the process, how these things came about and how they continue to grow and evolve after the, you know, the, 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 the team of, quote, experts leaves the scene. And so, you know, I, I guess to circle back to your question, the, the, in, in the case of the Bulgarian project, they, the, the team there, they had a very strong interest in this not just being, oh, okay, here, here come the Americans and they're going to shop out everything to people from America. And basically all the money goes outside of Bulgaria and all the development goes outside of Bulgaria. And yes, we're left with this beautiful new museum, but is it really our museum? And so, you know, just to get specific, a lot of the elements, uh, media development, which there's a a huge industry of media development in Bulgaria that they do for clients around the world, including clients in North America. Um, graphic development, um, obviously content uh, development, uh, um, those sorts of aspects. Uh, as, as much of that as possible not only is shared, but uh, is sort of headquartered in Bulgaria. And that's, you know, that has a lot to do with our team as well, that we're willing to do that, that we, we believe in that sort of collaborative process and certainly Skolnik Architecture and Design, you know, that's, that's, that's part of their DNA and all the people that we're working with, um, you know, that's, that's, that's part of the gig. It, 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 it could have gone differently. You know, obviously... <clears throat> and and different doesn't mean bad or or, or that, but it, it would have gone differently if the Bulgarians were working with a different team. It's that's uh, true of any project. So I don't know if that answered your question, but um, no, I I, I, I got to stick I, in I got to stick in that SWAT team analogy, which makes for good sort of visual radio. <laughs> Yes, no, I, I, we like good visual radio. No, I, I, no, your, your point is is well taken, and I would say too, and it, it just harkens back to a, a discussion I was having two weeks ago with Reagan Forrest, saying that it's a two way street. Uh, you know, the the consultant team needs to be, you know, see themselves as facilitators, and the uh, design and and the the owner, the client needs to see themselves as empowered, uh, equally empowered, and not just putting all their hopes in someone else saying, you know, oh, well, they'll take care of it. They have a magic bullet. They did it in, you know, someplace else and they can do it for us. Uh, it, it really has to be that, uh, that collaborative. Uh, I, and, I, one time somebody said to me, if, and they were talking about architects specifically, but I think it, it relates to any part of the process. They said, 
if if one side is winning all the arguments, it's really not a good process. That's very good. Yes, yes. One of the one of the uh, uh, rules of thumb that I I uh, have always lived by, and this was actually when I was a client uh, and was working on a startup project. I always said, you know, you need an equal number of people on the client side of the table as you do the design side. Mm-hmm. And when it, you know, when it gets a little off balance, and uh, you know, whether quantitatively or qualitatively, you know, things just aren't going to go as well as uh, as as we would want. Um, so I think with that, uh, we. We have to take one more uh, little break here, and when we come back, uh, Paul and I are going to continue our discussion. And I'm sure there's going to be, uh, you know, some more visual radio. So please, <laughs> <laughs> please stay tuned. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm Carol Bossert, and we will be back in a moment. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. 
Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here with Paul Orselli, and we have been having a wonderful time talking about all sorts of aspects of uh, developing um, uh, museum exhibits and collaborating. And, Paul, I don't want this show to end without having some discussion about the uh, very successful Cheat Book series, which is still available through the Association of Science Technology Centers and their publications. Um, can you... Tell us a little bit more about the cheap books and particularly the cheap book greatest hits, which I yeah. don't have a copy yet, but I yeah, promise I'm going to get it very soon. Hot off the press and, and now uh, keeping up with technology, you, you can get an electronic version so it, it uh, sort of zeroes out all the shipping costs and stuff. Um, I mean, the cheap books started hmm, a long time ago. The, very, the, the notion of the cheap books uh, started um, through, again, conversations at conferences and between people about, well, how can we share ideas? We all develop exhibits or we have these little, uh, <laughs> dare I say it, exhibit tricks. And what what's the mechanism to sort of share those things for people who are willing to share it? And so um, the, late, the late great... Dan Goldwater from the Franklin Institute, he, he had this idea, and he was like, well, I have this idea, but I don't want to actually do it. I need some young, I need some, 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 uh, some young guy to take, take care of this. And so we, we talked about it, and really what it is and what it has continued to be over the, the four different editions of it is... Um, examples of tested, low-cost exhibit ideas that museum colleagues from around the world, and I mean literally around the world, Latin America, North America, Asia, Africa, Europe, um, have contributed. And so each of the volumes um, has about 30 exhibit ideas that are meant to be not only reproduced exactly, but sort of give you enough information that you can sort of put your own twists, going back to that notion of, uh, you know, what's, what's a twist that makes sense in your situation. And over time, they've still, <laughs> still continued to sell. And so um, recently, uh, Aztec approached me, and after the, first, after the first volume, I was like, well, that's that. And then it's like, no, there's more ideas. Let's do a second volume. And after the second volume, that's that. And the third volume, so on and so forth. But and now we've done a fourth volume. And so it sort of riffs off the idea of, um, to use old technology, uh, you know, a, a greatest hits package like with music, uh, with a vinyl record or CD, where there are the best of the best from the first three volumes. And then there are 12 new exhibit ideas in addition. So um, that's the cheap book's greatest hits, and that's the cheap book. So um, it's really nice. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. It's sort of like doing the blog also, and I suppose your radio show, you, you sort of send these ideas out into the ether, and um, you, don't always know, <laughs> you don't always know exactly what happens to all those ideas, but it's nice sometimes that people will send you, uh, you know, and say, oh, yeah, we, we used your book to, you know, build a whole batch of exhibits for our new science center that's starting up in, like, literally Africa or California or wherever. So um, 
that's nice, and it's been a nice ongoing relationship um, with the folks at Aztec, the Association of Science Technology Centers. And, um, yeah, that's that. So in addition to <laughs> anything else I can tack onto my resume, I can tack on editor of the cheap books. Well, I, 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 I do, as, as I say, uh, I have, uh, I think, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and uh, they have been so very useful over the years. And again, uh, you know, the point to be made is it's not necessarily, I mean, it can be used as a recipe, but it really, they're, they're more um, uh, creative inspirations, uh, that that I find so so interesting, and particularly in this fourth volume, uh, that it that they really are pieces from around the world. I mean, we yeah. really are becoming one global uh, museum. Uh, you know, and using that word broadly, muse- museum society, and we, there is so much that we can share among uh, one another, and and it's difficult to uh, uh, to do it except through you know sort of these these virtual approaches. I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to the first international virtual museum uh, uh, um, conference. I think that that could be, uh, be fun and interesting. So, Beth Merritt, if you're listening, that's an idea for you. Uh, <laughs> um, Beth Merritt from the American Alliance of Museums, Future Museums Project, who was also on the show a few weeks ago uh, so, um, Paul, I want to shift gears a little bit more. I know you, as as I, you know, we try to keep up with the visitor research uh, that's that's going on um, in our fields, and and I was just wondering how how do you keep up, and then how do you try to apply some of the things that are coming out of visitor research uh, uh, initiatives to your uh, to your practical work. Um, those are two different questions. Keeping up is always, uh, is always uh, a challenge, um, since the volume of information, you know, new books, articles, online things, um, not only just in evaluation and, and visitor research, but, um, you know, more broadly, uh, exhibit topics or that. I mean, I guess the only way I can answer that is you just keep up. You, you follow the things that are interesting to you. In, ter- in terms of the application aspect, I really think about this as a, as a fairly broad continuum uh, in the way that it seems, it seems uh, to me that uh, to deliberately sort of divide things up into these compartmentalized chunks like, you know, formative evaluation or prototyping or what, whatever you want to call them. I, I think that's, it all is sort of an ongoing iterative process. And I, I think that you should use the tools that, um, I guess, that you internally are comfortable with I mean, at the end, you want to make sure that what you're doing, <laughs> like, like how, how do we know that visitors are actually getting what we say we want them to get out of this? And how, how, how do we know that by, by observing them or asking them or different ways? I mean, I'm, just because I'm an exhibits kind of person, 
I, I sort of look at the world <laughs> as a continuous opportunity to prototype things. And I mean anything, labels, programs, exhibit components, uh, I- interactive elements, digital elements. But if you're going to do that, it, it really has to be a, a truthful process. I mean, one thing that I, I suppose one reason that I advocate prototyping is it's a way to break out of the uh, sort of torturous process of being locked into a room in a meeting where everybody is just sort of gas-bagging and theorizing about what they think visitors are going to do with something or a certain situation, as opposed to actually <laughs> trying it out with visitors and le- essentially letting them tell us what they're going to do with it or show us what they're going to do with it. Um, I-, I-, I can remember a particularly painful conversation where literally we spent an hour debating <laughs> about what color Corian uh, a, a countertop should be because of the way it would affect visitors. I mean, th- that's an hour of my life lost. <laughs> I, I'm still angry about that because it was such a trivial pursuit and it really, we could have just given sample chips to visitors and let them pick and, and, and just let that be the decision-making process. So, I, um, so yeah, that's, that's the way I approach it. That's the way I, that's the way I teach it also, honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of making a hard wall division between what evaluation and visitor research is and what exhibit development is. I, I think it, it is more of a continuum. I think that's interesting, and I and I appreciate your comments so well. I, uh, you know, particularly the one about well, don't ask a question you don't want an answer to. Uh, you know, it it has to be a very very honest uh, on honest um, uh, give and take. Well, well, and by the same token, if really the answer is predetermined, why go through the charade of having <laughs> having a meeting or that? I. I, I used to get in trouble when I, when I was working in museums with a former director who sort of had that approach. I mean, she she totally knew where she wanted to steer the boat on certain discussion points, but we would still have a meeting where we would ostensibly discuss it, but, you know, it would be steered to that. And after a while, it became clear to me that that's what was happening. And, and what I said during a meeting was... It, if th- this answer is really predetermined, wh- why don't you just send out a memo instead of having a meeting? And, you know, the thing is, that was, uh, that was a little bit probably too in your face for, for that particular person, but it still sort of struck a chord with everybody in the room because on the surface it was a democratic process, but in, at the end it was like, no, this is what we want to do. And it's like, you know, fine. You want the wall to be green or red? Pick a color. I'll paint it that color. Why, why do we need to talk about it for an hour if you already know where you want to head? Right. Yes. We, we, we can chalk that up as the biggest number one killer of creativity and uh, 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 trust, um, uh, collaborative trust. Yeah. I mean, if you know, I mean, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to, to have input in a process. But if there's really not going to be input in a process, I'd, I'd almost rather know that, too, than to 
like make the charade that, that that you actually do have input in the process. Right, right. Oh, we need to end on a happier note than this. Carol. Yes, yes, we do. I promise we will. Let's, and that let's is, give some, you, let's give a visual radio. Ooh, there's fireworks and a, 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 a happy clown and balloons. No. Okay, you've got one minute, and I want you. What is the one piece of advice you'd give an up-and-coming exhibit designer or developer? Be a sponge. Take in every opportunity you can, whether, I know people hate to hear me say whether it's paid or unpaid, but look for every opportunity. You know, all those experiences, uh, who knows where they lead, you know. You take take that summer job to be a Civil War soldier, and 30 years later, you're on the radio with Carol Bossert. There you go. So just remember, when you're sweating in all those woolens, it could get really exciting. (laughs) It was exciting even then. Oh, I, I can imagine. In fact, I think that's where that's my next career is I will uh, I'll, I'll be uh, an interpreter at a, at a history museum. I think that could be very interesting. Well, Paul, this has been, as I knew it would be, a great and fun-filled uh, conversation. Uh, again, uh, for all of you who are listening, do uh, check out Paul's blog, Exhibit Tricks, uh, and also uh, get uh, one or all four of the cheap books greatest hits uh paul you are an inspiration to our field it's been a pleasure and i'm glad to count you as a friend and a colleague thank you so much thanks a lot carol i appreciate it and we will be back next week uh next week we'll be talking with ben garcia from the museum of man and i know it's a crummy name for a museum but it's a fantastic institution so so please stay tuned we'll be back next week this is carol bossert for museum life Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. <laughs>